cove of cork. Statio bene fide carinis. A safe anchorage for ships. Down from the city of Cork comes the River Lee, thrusting its soft water into the harsh Atlantic, which invades the bays and estuaries of Cork Harbour twice in the 24 hours, and heaps up the tides to the quays of the city itself. For the cove of Cork is the mouth of Cork, and Cork itself is that great intake through which passes yearly hundreds of thousands of tons of cargo to supply the body of the country. From outside the cove of Cork to ships far at sea go the needle-sharp notes of the radio beacon and the Daunt's Rock light vessel. The fastnet has been passed, or the conning bag, and the direction finder indicates the entrance to the cove of Cork from 50 miles away. Then in thick weather come the warning signals, the triple blast of poor head. At the entrance to the cove is the lighthouse on Roaches Point. This is the mouth of Cork Harbour, and behind its lips are its teeth. Spike, Carlisle, Camden, and Temple Breedy were built against Bonaparte by the enlightened engineer General Valencia, who subsequently learned the Irish tongue. The rise of Cove and its harbour began in 1780, when it became a naval station with an admiral's flag. The cause? The Napoleonic Wars. Indeed, it has been observed that it owes its rapid increase in wealth and prosperity to the peculiar circumstances of the times and with singular fortune, has derived prosperity from that which is generally regarded as a source of distress and disaster, a long and sanguinary war. side of the great island is a steep cliff and up this the town began to rise. The people lived from the sea and all that it brought. They lived on the sea too, in the navy and in the merchantmen, but often not as free men for the press gang was always active. Soon the cove had its company of sea fencibles described as marine yeomanry, a company which was reproduced under different circumstances in 1941 as the maritime inscription later and slower Marie. The strangely named Holy Ground provided entertainment of every kind for the sailor ashore. The houses in Aurelia Terrace are built from the timbers of a schooner of that name. In Roach's Row, shoemakers and ship's chandlers rubbed shoulders with the volunteers of 98, and part of it was called Gallipot Row, from the gallipots of blacking, which, when empty, the shoemakers who worked there filled with seed for the caged birds which hung outside. Here lived the shoemaker Paddy Doyle, remembered in the shanty used in furling the bunt of a sail.
sail was entering on its last and greatest period. Ships reported for orders to Crookhaven and the Cove of Cork. Sailors' voices echoed in the town. Many writers recorded their recollection of the cove of those days. Here is Lever, speaking of his youth. How I remember every whitewashed cottage and the beetling cliffs and that bold headland beside which the valley opens with its dark green woods and then Spike Island. And what a stir is yonder, early as it is. The men of war's tenders seem alive with people while still the little village is sunk in slumber not a smoke reed rising from its silent heart. And another writer says, What a coming and going there is from morning to night. Sailor men in canvas trousers, their earrings flashing, their faces darkened by tropic suns. Bearded boatswains from the men of war. The steady officers threading their way through the press and the pranks and gay laughter of the middays. From every inn comes the sound of the fiddle and the red coats of the soldiers make the scene as bright in the spring sunshine as the hoists of bunting making signals from the anchored fleet. But the war ended. The long and sanguinary war. The defeat of Bonaparte and the peace of 1815 temporarily checked the rise of Cove. It ceased to be the station of an admiral, and the town had to depend on the continuing development of the merchant shipping which was using its magnificent harbour. Construction of the forts proceeded, but the fleets and garrisons were small. Vittling bills dwindled. The inns counted pence where they had counted guineas. The trades of the outfitters and the bootmakers and the ship's chandlers fell away, and the lodging houses were no longer filled with the wives and children of the naval officers attached to the station. Everything that anchored in Cove had to be turned to account. And so we read... You're welcome, you're welcome, Rear Admiral Malcolm, to anchor your squadron at Cove. And moreover, the stronger your force and the longer your stay, the more welcome by Jove. But this depression was only temporary, for the merchant fleets increased to such an extent that it was said in the picturesque exaggeration which survives in Cove to this day that it was possible to walk from one end of the anchorage to the other from deck to deck. And in addition, around the harbour, the towns of Whitegate and Ahada, Crosshaven and Monkstown were expanding. And then the blight came on the potatoes. They blackened and rotted in the earth. Famine was in the land. The repeal of the Corn Laws and the enclosure of lands added their impetus to the progress of starvation and the terrible exodus from the country began. The Cove of Cork was one of the chosen ports. It was not only war which brought profit to the rising town. Famine sent thousands through its streets, 
through its lodging houses and through the hands of the shipmaster's runners to the emigrant ships. That emigration was the solution of simply everything became most happily clear to some people. Pamphlets and books of the greatest good sense were quickly printed and published. Uh, the Irish Emigrant's Guide, The Emigrant's Friend. Emigration, the whole business explained. Canada, America and Australia all had their enthusiastic surgeons, ready to ease the pressure and fever in Ireland by the simple operation of bloodletting through her pots. Emigration was everything. Less mouths to feed, fewer cries to hear. The emigrant family should bring so many cooking utensils and so many blankets and so much provisions. Uh, the men should rise early and wash themselves on deck, allowing the industrious women to tidy up the living space below for the day. Bearing a hand at pulling and hauling would call forth the approval of the ship's officers, and the captain would gladly accommodate women in childbirth behind a canvas screen. Everything was delightfully simple, and it really seemed as though dear Dame Nature herself were actually conniving at this sensible redistribution of the population. In 1857, the humane Mr. Inman had emigrant ships sailing out of Galway, and his city of Manchester used what is now known as Lynch's Key. He was the first to attempt to provide better quarters for his wretched passengers. With emigration at its height, the steamer Shearwater passes through the traffic of the cove and anchors within 500 yards of Spike Island. A rueful-looking place where I would discern crowning the hill the long walls of the prison and a battery commanding the harbor. That was John Mitchell, who has been brought from Kingstown to the Cove of Cork and Spike Island on the first stage of his transportation for treason felony to Van Diemen's land. In this court, nothing is to be seen but the high walls and the blue sky. And beyond those walls, I know there is a beautiful bay lying in the bosom of its soft green hills. If they keep me here for many years, I will forget what the fair outer world is like. Gazing on grey stones, my eyes will grow stony. And the jail journal continues, August the 29th, 1848. Drew my chair to the door, sat down in the sun, and spent an hour or two reading The Merry Wives of Windsor. You know, thank God for Shakespeare at any rate. August the 30th. My turnkey, who was desired never to leave me, I found to be a good, quiet sort of creature. He is some kind of dissenter, hums psalm tunes under his breath, and usually stays as far away from me as our bounds allow. There is a door in the high wall leading into another enclosure. And as I was taking a turn through my territory today, the turnkey was near that door and said to me in a low voice, This way, sir, if you please. He held the door open. I passed through. And immediately a tall, gentleman-like person in black, but rather overworn clothes, came up to me and grasped my hands with every demonstration of reverence. I knew his face, but could not remember who he was. He was Edward Walsh, author of Macreevine Knoe and other sweet songs.
I asked him what he was doing at Spike Island. And he told me that he had accepted the office of teacher to a school they keep here for small convicts. A very wretched affair, and to a shy, sensitive creature like Edward Walsh, it must have been daily torture. Poor Edward Walsh. His farewell to Mitchell cost him his position in Spike Island and brought about his death in poverty. The lessening of the famine did not stop emigration. It reduced the large numbers. On one occasion, 2,000 souls left Cove for Canada in a single day. But it became more regulated and more part of the normal scene. The harbour was still growing in importance. Out at Roaches Point, at its mouth, there were coast guards and ship's agents and pilots ready to put to sea at the first sight of a ship's royals. And the new electric telegraph was soon to be set up near the lighthouse. With the famine over and her successful escape from death by assassination still making loyal hearts beat, there could be no more appropriate visitor to the Cove of Cork in the minds of many than the august one whose yacht, Victoria and Albert, passed Roaches Point on Thursday, the 2nd of August, 1849. In view of the distressed state of the country, much was expected of Victoria's visit, and there was a bustle of preparation in Cove and Cork and Dublin. Advertisements for fireworks occupied the newspapers. Seats in windows were for sale, and many were the odes of welcome produced by representative committees. Odes such as these. I just thought um, <laughs> I, I thought this might not be uh, be inappropriate. Just, just a thing of my own. Um, a few stanzas, you understand. Uh, well, I haven't really polished it up, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, quite, quite, quite. <clears throat> she comes, our ocean queen and pride. Amid her courtly train, while round her matchless navy ride, with fearless towers on either side, befitting England's queen, uh, queen, uh, queen and train is a permissible rhyme. I have that in Dr. Dolan's authority. Queen and train is, is a permissible rhyme. <laughs> see, see how the hardy Celts rush on, what O's and Macs are seen, their fears forgot, their anger gone. United each and every one to welcome Aaron's Queen. To welcome Aaron's Queen. Oh, very nice. Now, little Charlotte has written something her very self, and I think it will go very well with the posy of wildflowers. Oh, yeah. Now, dear, speak up and don't be afraid, just as though you were saying it to the Queen. So Aaron's turn has come once more, though many a year between. Our monarch soon will see our shore and set poor Paddy in a roar of joy to see his queen. Oh, very nice. <laughs> of joy to see his queen. Oh, very nice. I do think these tokens and verse will be something for Her Majesty to look back on. We may not be able to say all of them, but in any event, we've got sufficient. And we'll dress little Charlotte in a tartan shawl. They see the Queen's very partial to the high. Well, 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 j j just one more little thing now, me own, <laughs> with your kind permission. <laughs> uh, now, Miss Coffert. Throughout our nation's isle, thy beaming gracious smile will cheer each heart. Like morning's glorious light Closing the gloom of night So sorrow will 
the sorry we take flight and care to part. Oh, very nice. The country's need was desperate, and the welcomes and tributes were proportionately fulsome. But not everyone took this view. An angry voice cries out in the core constitution, protesting against the costly reception. Sir, are we to have illuminations? Are we mad? Has not the funeral wail of the dead, dying, starving, pauper population of this wretched country rung trumpet-tongued in the ears of our English fellow subjects? Is this sepulchre to be whited for our gracious queen? And Victoria approached the Cove of Cork. On board Victoria and Albert in the Cove of Cork, arrived after a not very pleasant passage. We passed the land's end at nine o'clock in the morning. We went on deck after eight in the evening and were then close to the Cove of Cork and could see many bonfires on the hills and rockets were set off from the various steamers. The harbour is immense, though the land is not very high, and entering by twilight, it had a very fine effect. But on board another vessel, Neptune, anchored in Simon's Bay, Cape Town, John Mitchell is writing two months later on his way to exile. This year, Her Majesty's advisers deemed the coast clear for the royal yacht. Plenty of blazing, vociferous excitement called loyalty. Loyalty, as you know, consists of willingness to come out into the street to see a pageant pass. So Her Gracious Majesty has come and enthroned herself in the hearts of her Irish subjects, and the newspapers are to say at their peril that for Ireland a brighter day is just going to dawn. The day was exceedingly muggy, which is characteristic of the Irish climate. The harbour is very extensive and there are several islands on it, one of which is very large. Spike Island is immediately opposite us and has a convict prison. Her Majesty did not visit Spike Island. Her Majesty did not visit the famine areas of Skibbereen or Westport or Skull. The town of Cove is picturesquely built up a hill. We first went round the harbour, all the ships saluting as well as a number of steamers and yachts. We then went into Cove and lay alongside the landing stage, which was very prettily decorated. This was Columbine Key, named for the famous yacht which used to lie there, and today known as the Town Promenade. On it, the citizens had erected a small wooden room. Representatives went on board the Royal Yacht. May it please your majesty, we the inhabitants of Cove and the Great Island respectfully beg permission to approach your royal person and to express the feelings of devotion and affectionate loyalty which we entertain <coughs> towards your majesty. The two members of parliament, Messrs Roach and Parr, as well as other gentlemen, including the Roman Catholic clergyman and the members of the Yacht Club, presented addresses. Which would, at this particular crisis, give employment to many of our suffering artisans and labourers and render this important harbour so much more convenient for your majesty's service. With a view to commemorating appropriately and enduringly the happy event of Your Majesty's visit, we beg respectfully that Your Majesty may be graciously pleased to change the name of Cove to Queenstown. To give the people the satisfaction of calling the place Queenstown, in honour of its being the first place on which I set foot on Irish ground, I stepped ashore amid a roar of cannon. After this singular mark of royal condescension, 
The town took its new name, and with it, an attitude of mind which was, in some cases, to persist for over a hundred years. And now, Cove began to prosper again. By 1850, river steamers linked the towns around the harbour with Queenstown, and it was the Scots steward of one of these boats who built the Rob Roy Hotel out of his savings. The Naval Hotel was already famous as the scene of a triangular duel with pistols, and was now known as Broadway's Hotel. Today, it is the European. In Westbourne Terrace, in what is now the Westbourne Hotel, were the premises of the Royal Western Yacht Club, a club which does not appear to have had a long life and disappeared after a merger with the Queenstown Yacht Club. This hotel faces the pier where Victoria momentarily landed. There are still many traces of old hotels and lodging houses in the town, for though the famine had passed away and, to a certain extent, the economic pressure eased, emigration continued as a steady business, and the earlier emigrants began to write home and summon their relatives. The naval installations were soon to be completed, and a dockyard would soon open at Rushbrook, built on land left to a Miss Rushbrook by Lord Middleton, who also owned the property on which the Deepwater Quay and railway station now stand. Admiral Moresby, who was born in Queenstown, recalls in his life story an amusing incident of this period which occurred when he landed a quantity of glycerine on the town quay. At this period, nitroglycerine had become a fashionable explosive, and the citizens had no doubt that the young captain had landed in their midst nitroglycerine instead of harmless glycerine. There was an immediate panic, a calling on the fathers of the town, and the start of an evacuation of all the houses on the waterfront which Captain Moresby only calmed by bringing some barrels of the glycerine up to what is now a football ground above the town and firing musket ball after musket ball into the stuff without causing the explosion which the people, half fearful and half curious, looked for from a distance. The Crimean War and later the South African War brought increased troop movements and an increased naval strength to Queenstown. Long and sanguinary wars. Shipping flourished, Queenstown flourished, but emigration flourished too. It had become a national habit now. There was always the better opportunity beyond the horizon. Towards the end of the 19th century, a child named John Cogan emigrated from Queenstown itself. His father and uncles had gone before him and were working at their trade of shipwright in San Francisco. And this descendant of the Norman settlers about the cove was carried out after them in an emigrant ship by his mother. They travelled across the American continent by rail as far as the rail ran, and the remainder of the journey led them by stagecoach through by no means settled country. This John Cogan, retired from the Boston Police Force, is today president of the Cove Men's Association of Boston, an association whose existence indicates recent emigration from Cove itself. As a boy, he returned to Cove, but emigrated again at the age of 16. Cogan, you... Uh, emigrated again at the age of 16 yeah. from uh, Cove. Now, what was Cove or Queenstown like in <coughs> those days? Well, conditions in Queenstown at that time were ideal as to employment. As the harbour was filled with ships whose crews came ashore and, of course, got outfitted in every way. 
and the transatlantic liners were coming in here in large numbers, taking out thousands of immigrants who trooped through the town from the railway station day after day. And the warships, which added to a special scenery there to the harbor and their crews ashore, plus the soldiers from the forts leaving plenty of money there, all more than the naval steam at the naval depot was very busily engaged in building warships and repairing others, giving more employment, and the steam laundry, which was up on Park Road, owned by Mr. Lord, employed 500 girls. So there really was uh, very good employment. Right very there. wonderful. The, the town was buzzing with employment at that time. Well, now, Mr. Kirkin, a personal question. Why did you uh, emigrate again, then, if things were so good? Well, my aunt sent for me at that time, saying there was a better opportunity and that she had it for me, which she was right, and I did get the opportunity. Yes. The opening of the 20th century showed Queenstown, as it continued to be called, still increasing in prosperity, even though the concourse of ships at the anchorage was decreasing, because for many years now, the sea traffic was passing right up to Cork. It may be said that the coming of steam and the work of the Cork Harbour Commissioners in dredging the river, creating a ship channel and developing the great port of Cork meant a certain loss to the lower harbour. For at the beginning of the previous century, only vessels of less than 150 tons reached Cork itself. But Queenstown was still living and prospering on what the sea brought and took away, and it had also become a dormitory for the city of Cork. The fishing huts and the watch houses of the preventive men had long gone. The buildings were solid and spacious, and there were great estates about the harbour, houses surrounded by gardens, and packed streets rose steeply to the top of the town. Bands played, flags flew, great yachts and great fleets visited the harbour. It seemed always to be summer. Always to be summer, until the end of summer 1914. Admiral's flag immediately returned to Queenstown. The garrisons of the forts increased immediately, almost overnight, and two divisions of the British Expeditionary Force embarked from the port. Queenstown became a harbour of the highest importance, but submarines quickly ensured that its shelter was never seen again by many of the great sailing ships. Sunlight, Express, Susanna, Thomasine, Crown of India, Dumfrieshire, Bougainville, they all went. Admiral Jellicoe said that the limit of sea endurance might have been reached by November 1917 had the U-boat problem not been controlled. This was the task of Admiral Sir Lewis Bailey, who was still remembered in Cove. He brought the flower-class sloops of 1,250 tons to this station, which he rapidly set humming by his vigorous methods. The dockyards gave full employment, and a most important administrative victory was achieved when the soldiers were finally removed from Hall Bolan, and the Admiral placed his signal station on the highest point of this ink island, where, in a very modern form, the Naval Service Signal and Wireless Station is working today. But the Royal Cork Yacht Club was known as the unofficial centre of naval intelligence. On the 7th of May, a great ship is approaching the south coast of Ireland, we had left New York seven days ago, and now the Irish coast was only nine miles off. It was this, and the calm seas sparkling in the sunshine, that gave the passengers confidence. 
and made them chat together as calmly as in peacetime. But few of them noticed that the captain was now almost continuously on the bridge, or that that men on the lookout had been doubled. I was a much, and I'd begun taking a four-point bearing of the lighthouse to confirm our position. But I never completed the job. That was the voice of Captain Bestig, who was third officer on board. From the signal station at Hull Bolan comes a warning. From Commander-in-Chief Queenstown Command, reports of submarine activity all parts of south and southwest Irish coasts. Hmm. Set a course to close the land. 1240 hours, galley head bearing, north 10 degrees east, distance 18 miles. Altered course, north 67 east, to closed land. Through the morning, more warnings about submarines. Submarines such as U-20, now manoeuvring at periscope depth. Einstellung, 32 knoten. 32 knoten, Kapitän. 7 meter tiefe. 7 meter tiefe. Feuer bereit. Feuer bereit. Steierboot, 5 grad. Steierboot, 5 grad, Kapitän. The wires in the periscope glass cross against the ship. Rohr, Nummer 1. There it goes on its way, the instrument which will bring America into the war of 1914. Gyros maintaining direction, valves maintaining depth, engines maintaining speed, science bent on destruction. I heard a warning cry from the lookout man, and then I saw a lengthening streak of white on the surface. And that meant only one thing in those days. Immediately after the ship was struck, a high column of water, debris and smoke shot up amidships. The ship began to list. Boat stations next. Passengers crowding up onto the boat deck from saloons and cabins. There were excited voices and sharp orders, and then a strange hush. The list increased, and the atmosphere became tense as men and women realized that in a matter of moments, they would be fighting for their lives. Suddenly, a great angry wave rolled up and covered the foredeck below me. I heard cries of terror as it rushed onwards, tearing away boats, the helpless passengers, the crew, and then burying the mighty liner herself. So the Lusitania was struck. The ships which might have helped in a rescue are scattered about the coast and patrol and are also at Bearhaven and Queenstown. In 45 minutes, she will sink off the old head of Kinsale with the loss of 1,198 souls. This was one of the strongest influences in bringing America into the war two years later. But that was something which could not be explained to the deaf ears of the hundreds of bodies brought into Queenstown, where a touching memorial now commemorates the loss of RMS Lusitania and those who sailed in her. Less than a year of warfare later, another explosion is heard, this time in the very approaches to Cork Harbour. The Oud has been blown up by her German crew who have escaped in the ship's boats. The Oud, disguised as a neutral Norwegian merchantman, sailed from Germany with a cargo of arms 
to aid the rising of 1916. The rendezvous of Innes Tooskirt in Tralee Bay was never kept. Sir Roger Casement, originator of the plan, was captured near Feenid, and now the British, eager to obtain proof of collusion between Germany and the Irish leaders, have seized the ship. There is indeed a theory that all details of her voyage were known to the War Office, and that she was allowed to proceed towards her destination in order that the object of her voyage might be established beyond all doubt. In April 1917, America entered the First World War. The British Admiralty has requested the cooperation of a division of American destroyers in the protection of commerce near the coast of Great Britain and France. Your mission is to assist the Entente powers in every possible way. All destroyers and light surface craft to assemble at Queenstown, Ireland. Gay Sims, Admiral. In May, Queenstown contacts by wireless the American destroyer Wadsworth leading the flotilla, and these signals are exchanged. Destroyer Mary Rose, Queenstown command to Wadsworth. Welcome to the American colors. Wadsworth to destroyer Mary Rose. Thank you. We are glad of your company. And out to welcome the Americans goes HMML181, cap carrying Captain ERGR Evans of Broke. Admiral Sir Lewis Bailey had control of all these forces. He had little patience with requests from ship's captains to have repairs carried out, to occupy more than the minimum time in victualling, or in any way to squeeze out an extra few hours ashore. However, on the arrival of the American flotilla, this dialogue was heard in Admiral's house above the town, between Sir Lewis Bailey and Captain Tausig, senior American naval officer reporting on arrival. Captain Towser, at what time will your ships be ready for sea? Ready as soon as fueled, sir. Do you require any repairs? No, sir. Any stores? No, sir. Each vessel has enough on board to last 70 days, sir. Uh, you'll take four days' rest. Good afternoon. The strength of the fleet at Queenstown was now 35 United States destroyers, eight minesweeping sloops, HMS Adriatic, and nine of the famous Q ships. But every new arrival of United States destroyers caused a fresh mining of the harbor approaches by German submarines. Troops and sailors, American and English, filled Cove, and there were many clashes ashore between them. Feelings ran high in Rebel Cork since 1916, and as a result of attacks on ratings, the city was put out of bounds after 4 p.m. in 1917. The two admirals, Bailey and Sims, both men of strong opinions, were often in conflict at the start of their partnership, but later on, things went so well that they exchanged positions. And in 1918, Admiral Sims became Commander-in-Chief of the Queenstown Command. And the First World War ended. A long and sanguinary war. Queenstown was left with capital to live on, but as the fleets departed, less and less income. Unemployment and emigration returned. The war was over. In the troubled years of national resurgence that followed, the dockyard at Passage West was destroyed with a consequent loss of employment. Labor ceased in the Hall Boland dockyard, and eventually the whole installation was sold for scrap. Only small garrisons were maintained in the forts, and where once fleets had filled the harbor, 
a solitary British destroyer lay at her moorings. Queenstown almost reverted to its early status of a small health resort and centre for yachts. It was never a fishing port like Ardglass or Killybegs. It had depended, apart from emigrant traffic, on the shipping. But the shipping had moved up to the port of Cork, which was still, and is still, developing. And it had depended on war. When it became a barracks, an arsenal, a dockyard, a hotel, and a safe anchorage for overseas power. But the new spirit which was stirring through the country was stirring in Queenstown too. On the 23rd of July, 1920, at a special meeting of the Queenstown Urban District Council, this resolution was adopted. We, the Queenstown Urban District Council, hereby resolve that the name of the said council and the name of the district of the said council be changed from Queenstown Urban District and Queenstown Urban District Council to Cove Urban District and Cove Urban District Council, respectively, as from the date of the sanction by the Cork County Council to the said changes. And we hereby direct that notice of the said changes shall be published three times in the Cork Examiner, Daily Independent, Young Ireland and Watchword of Labour newspapers and by placards in the said district. Cobb H. Cobb. Elon Ardnev. Elon Eliohan. Elon Moore and Barra. Ballyvaloon. A great island. Queenstown for 60 years and now Cove again. Cobb H. Cobb. Cobb. No, Cove. It appears that the H makes a B into a V in Irish. Then why isn't it C-O-V-E? Anyhow, I'll always call it Queenstown. And the town became Cove, with Queenstown remaining as an attitude of mind rather than a geographical term. In 1938 came a change of the greatest importance. The government of the United Kingdom will transfer to the government of Vera the admiralty property and rights at Bearhaven, Cove, Queenstown and Loch Swilly now occupied by care and maintenance parties, together with buildings, magazines, emplacements, instruments, and fixed armaments, with the ammunition at present at the said post. The forts have been handed over, and Eamon de Valera hoists the tricolor in Spike Island. Today, these forts are known officially as Duny Vahir, Dun and Dorvisha and Dun and Vishtela. But Europe has passed the milestones of the Anschluss and Czechoslovakia and Munich on its way to another battlefield. A long and sanguinary war. Yes, but this time, as a result of the country's policy, Cove was not to provide shelter for foreign fleets and embarkation stages for foreign troops. This war did not mean a full port and bustling streets. The shipping dwindled away to a few weekly boats. But there always have been cove men serving at sea, and the marine service, as it was then called, which came to haul Bolin in 1940, immediately drew cove men into its ranks and its few ships. There were troops in Belmont huts east of the Holy Ground. The biggest hotel became a training school for officers. The garrison in the forts were increased as the defence forces expanded. The harbour entrance was protected. Its waters were mined, and no ships entered unchallenged and unexamined by the port control maintained around the coast by the marine service. But though not directly touched by war, Cove had evidence of the results of war. The Larpool towing the bombed and crippled Panos thousands of miles to the Cove of Cork. The armed gun platforms in the merchantmen entering the harbour. The loss of four sailors of the port control in the harbour disaster of 1944 carrying out their duties. 
the Kerr-Logue, later to suffer air attack, though a neutral, bringing in German sailors, survivors of the Battle of the Bay of Biscay. The French corvette Roselys, taking away German officers who had escaped to Kinsale after the war. During this period, something remarkable happened in the town. It could no longer look across the seas or profit by what passed in or out of the harbour, so Cove turned inwards on Cove and found its own life. This to the onlooker showed itself in small and curious ways at first. For instance, there were excellent homemade shows by Dennis Harrington based on local events. Dr. Gabreurs, organist and carrioneur of the cathedral, presented cantatas and condensed operas. Travelling theatrical companies visited the town. A new cinema opened, always a sign of life in a community. The annual regatta had a sparkle and excitement which is not surpassed today. And the new Cove Sailing Club was founded. LSF, LDF and Maritime Inscription, to give them their original names, were all busy, and in a country where there was no private motoring and transport to other parts was at a slow-running minimum, Cove began to live for Cove. The formation of Irish Shipping Limited in 1941 was of supreme importance to the Cove of Cork and to Cork itself. Shipping was vital to the country in order to maintain supplies, and with boldness and foresight, the government bought the only craft available, ancient merchant vessels, which had passed through scores of owners. The regular voyages of their modern namesakes are an everyday part of the commercial scene. But in those days, the voyages were miracles. Miracles of nursing shaken hulls and old engines. And there were more miracles in Rushbrook Dockyard, where Irish Shipping Limited took up a controlling interest and gave full employment to workers who carried out jobs which almost amounted to complete rebuilding. One ship remained so long in the dockyard that workers married and started families while on that job. And of her it was written up on a wall in Cove. She came as a boon and a blessing to men, and I hope she will stay there forever. Amen. Wartime had been a time for planning in Cove, and at its end the immediate task was to pick up the routine of the new times to come. The biggest hotel was derequisitioned and prepared for the return of the liner traffic and Rushbrook Dockyard was able to play its part in the demand for peacetime shipping immediately. It converted two flower-class corvettes for cargo passenger service in the Mediterranean, and a river-class frigate which was converted in the dockyard is now a car and passenger ferry on the Dover-Calais run. For the first time in the history of the town, the cessation of war was not followed by a long reduction in the naval strength. After an interim period, the new naval service expanded and modernized itself. The signal station on the top of Hall Bolan, once the home of the Water Club, and in the First War, the site of Sir Lewis Bailey's station, was equipped so that it could make direct contact with service craft, even on foreign cruisers. And here also a constant watch is maintained over the immense harbour. A fire on board one of the tenders servicing a liner, which might have turned into a disaster were it not for the quick decision of the tender's captain, was reported from the signal station and the naval service sent all available craft. Sometimes there are yachts in distress, and here is a night incident recorded in the log which opens on the lookout platform. What's that? What? Out there. Some sort of a blaze. Where? Oh, yes. Open the window. Give me the glasses. I think it's something on fire ashore. No, it's a boat in the channel. Sure. Hmm. Get the officer of the day, you. 
I think it's a yacht. Two men aboard. Three men. I can see three. Hello? Officer of the day here. Yes, station master. Yes? There's a yacht on fire in the harbour, about a mile over towards the Black Prince Pier. Is there any other boat near her? There's three men on board, sir, and no boat near her. We're calling her on the land. Just a minute, sir. She's come back with SOS. Right. Ring off and keep your eye on her. Switch. Get me transport as quick as you can. Is that the duty, coxswain? Right. Pay attention. There's a yacht on fire to the west of the island over towards Black Prince Pier. Got that? Now turn out the duty crew and get the duty boat out to her as fast as you can and report back. The fast launch, which is always kept ready for instant use, speeds up the harbour to the yacht, and meanwhile the officer of the day is kept in touch with the incident. See you, sir. The duty boat's alongside. I think they're moving. I think they're going to take her in tow. The fire's nearly out, sir. In fact, it is out now. That's the last of it. Have you logged the whole incident okay? Yes, it's all down here, sir. Force comes out at... Zero, zero, one, zero. All over at, at zero, zero, four, two. Right. Let me have a copy of that in the morning. Aye, More important than anything else in the working life of Cove today is the foundry, also in Hall Bowling, known as Irish Steel Holdings Limited. Throughout the war years, it lay idle. The maintenance party kept it in order, but there was no production. Then the furnaces were lit. Smoke appeared from the chimneys. The rolling mills began to roar, and employment started immediately for men living around the Cove of Cork. How this came about is explained by Mr. Fitzpatrick, the manager. Now be generally known that the steel industry at Hall Bowline is the only one of its kind in the whole of Ireland. The industry was established in Hall Bowline by private enterprise shortly before the war, but unfortunately did not prosper. In 1947, the industry was acquired by the government, and since that time it has been operated as a national concern. Considerable progress has been made in developing the industry, and measured by the usual yardstick of profitability, it has continued to make profits since 1947, notwithstanding the fact that the company's sale prices compare most favorably with prices of foreign steels imported into Ireland. In fact, for some considerable period, the prices of Irish steel have been far less and prices of similar products obtainable elsewhere. I am pleased to say that the industry is meeting the country's full normal demands for steel. In the ferro-concrete field, that is steel for reinforcing concrete, the company's products are used in the building industry and in particular in public works contracts including hospitals, municipal buildings, harbour works, bridges, etc. On the manufacturing side, the products are used in the making of bolts and nuts agricultural machinery and implements, gates, railings, roof trusses, and numerous other manufactured articles. With the increased industrialization of Ireland, I have no doubt that many other industries will be developed based on steel as raw materials. Irish Steel Holdings Limited employs approximately 500 workers drawn from both sides of the Eld River Lee. The industry is operated entirely by these locally trained employees and the remarkable results achieved in all departments of the industry are a credit to them. Visitors from steel-making centres in other countries have been surprised by the high degree of skill and dexterity displayed by our workers, who have, in a comparatively short period, acquired a real practical knowledge of the steel-making and rolling process, which in other countries have taken years to instil. In fact, British and Continental Works, which I have visited, 
were surprised to learn that it was possible to train raw workers in the intricacies of steelmaking in such a short period, in the absence of steelmaking tradition in Ireland. The assistance and cooperation freely given by all our workers in all sections of the industry have in no small measure helped in making a success of the undertaking and the admirable results achieved pay eloquent tribute to their adaptability and initiative. And what does this mean to the reviving town? Now could you tell me, in your opinion, what you think this industry, what its effect has been on coal? Well I think only for this industry the town would have declined very badly. Personally, I don't remember the what we call the bad old days, but uh, I know the Those old. Be the days before before, before the last yes. yeah, No, no, before Irish Steel started, yes, before 1939, about yes. 1935 to 39. Yes. I don't remember those days very well. I was only going to school, mm. but uh, hearing people talk about them, things must have been very bad in town indeed. There was very little work. The houses were just falling down all around us. Yes. But now the town is expanding, as you can see from here, the town it's is expanding indeed, yes. further and further. And it's chiefly as a result of Irish steel being going since 1939. And the employment. And the employment it has given. Yes. Your cove too. I'm cove as well. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Well, previous to 39, the town was a bad way. More of it. And uh, it chiefly depended on liners and uh, casual work in the docks and hospital. Yes. Now, uh, here's a man from Passage, isn't it? Or near Passage? Is giving much employment as far up as Passage? Yes, we have a few, a good few from Passage and the surrounding districts, yes. even as far as Crosshaven. Have you? Yes, we have been down Clarity Line. Yes. And line was there much actual unemployment there before? Oh, yes, and especially around Passage and yes. the North Places. Very badly hit at the moment, and this industry has provided them with yes. already. So you could really say that this has been a means of stopping emigration, couldn't you? Definitely, definitely. As a matter of fact, I understand the population has increased in town. Has it? Instead of declining. Yes. And Cove certainly has had a share of emigration, hasn't it? It, it has, has, it has, it has. Anything up to 4,000 people have gone out in the last 25 years. Yes. This is a truer prosperity than the prosperity of the expanding years of Cove. For the town is now, to a great extent, its own paymaster. And there is expansion, too. Old and dilapidated dwellings in the holy ground have been replaced by better-class houses. Over a hundred new homes have been built, and the Cove Urban Council has acquired many derelict sites. The water supply is being enlarged and modernized to meet with the demands of housing and of industry, and even the transport from one island to another of so many of the workers who occupy these and other houses means further employment in the town, for the barges and launches and tenders are locally built by the firm of Fitzpatrick. Four transatlantic liners now call at Cove, and a yearly visitor is this Mr. John Cogan, emigrant and the son of emigrants, whose voice has already been heard. Yes. Now, what do you think of uh, that Cove and this Cove that we're looking at now? Well, I think today this Cove is a very wonderful Cove. It never was more lovely to me, and uh, the employment that has been given now over in Hall Bowling, from what I see of it, and other under industries that I understand are about to come here, will bring it back to its former status, except, of course, with the old sailing ship, which was a thing of the past. Yes, indeed. Yes. Very picturesque, but a thing of the past, I'm afraid. That's right, sir. The arrival of a liner means intense activity, often at a very early hour, for the shipping representatives, the customs and immigration officials, the hotel keepers, the railway and baggage men, and the post office. The monthly schedule of sailings is known well in advance, but the estimated time of arrival, or ETA, 
comes from the liner by radio to the wireless station at Tivoli, operated by Cork Harbour Commissioners. This is the station which took over all the traffic of Valencia Radio when Valencia was put out of order during the Great Gale of 1951. The station is also a school of wireless telegraphy. Here is the SS America of United States Lines announcing her time of arrival at the Cove Anchorage and other matters. Captain Good, harbour master at Cove, is informed and he telephones the details to Captain Austin who will bring out the servicing tender. And the tender, Shandon, will leave the Deepwater Key Cove at 7 a.m. She, the liner is landing 219 passengers, 145 heavy baggage, 636 light baggage, and also 1,279 sacks of mails. The pilot's launch leaves to meet the liner with the pilot, who, to save time, will take the liner in and out and be carried on to her other ports and back to the Cove of Cork on her western journey. Well, here's the America dead on time, Pastor Hearn. Well, now, Mr. Davidson, he's ahead of his time this morning. He's ahead of his time this morning, but all the better, you know. Because you, you'll get away sooner. Uh, when you get aboard, you're off to where? Uh, well, now, yes, we should be pulling out of here now around half past eight this morning. And the next stop will be Lee Howe. And uh, after that will be Southampton. And maybe I'll go ashore to Southampton and wait in, in Southampton until the ship comes back to Southampton. Uh, come right. You have a great life. Well, that's what you all say, yes. That's what you are sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> oh, yes, but uh, not too good out here in the winter, you know. <laughs> Now coming alongside the America. Launch and liner still with way on them. Distance is narrowing. It looks like the side of a cliff. And away up on top of the boat deck, passengers are getting their first sight of Ireland. They've opened the door high up in the starboard side and they've lowered a Jacob's ladder. That's a rope ladder with wooden rungs. Now, pilot Ahern, bag in one hand, leaning out to grab the ladder. He has it. He's going up, and the pilot launches away with it again. When the America anchors, the sound comes across the water to the tender, which is bringing out the eastbound passengers, mails, and baggage men. A lighter is also going off to take the rest of the hundreds of American mail bags. Now the captain of the tender, Shandon, contacts the America's bridge by radio telephone. Hello America, hello America, Sandra Shandon calling, Sandra Shandon calling. Uh, you'll take us on the starboard side, you'll take us on the starboard side, is that correct? Over. Now we're going to take you on the starboard side, that is correct. We'll take the lighter on the port side, over. Hello America, hello America, thanks very much. You'll take the lighter on the port side, over. When the tender comes alongside the liner, the embarking passengers are in the smoking room aft, passing before the immigration officials. Your mailing card and your white card ready, please. 
for the immigration man. Thank you. 5th of September. And uh, are you coming to visit relations or on uh, relatives? Yeah. Will it be a vacation? Uh, yeah, that's what it is. My first in 27 years. First in 27. That's what, that's what I figured out to be. Well, I hope you'll enjoy your... <laughs> yeah, thank you. You'll find a big cheese in Ireland, I think, after that's 27 what years. That's what they say. But I communicated very frequently with them all the time, so I know yes. the latest. <laughs> yeah, well, when you're leaving, will you spend any time in England, or will you go straight back to the States? Well, I have, uh, I'll tell you, there's, uh, there's uh, a cousin of my wife's over... Tourist souvenirs are brought off to those who are not landing, and here is a last-minute sale. Show me the price of this article here, which you're about ready to sell me. It's shoulder, six dollars, sir, and it's short five dollars, and it's scarf for three dollars, and it's scarf two dollars, sir. And handkerchiefs two for a dollar, sir. Very well. Why you keep it? I'll take about a couple of handkerchiefs. How would that be? Quite all right, sir. All ashore that's going ashore. All ashore that's going ashore. The tender casts off and the liner weighs anchor. The ceremonial farewells are exchanged. First, the tender. Then the America's Basso Twin Sirens. Sometimes passengers landing from liners are welcomed by the famous Carillion of the Cathedral, played by Dr. Staff Cabros, who begins with a cascade, a sound as delicate as the lace made in the country where this style of bell ringing has its home. Dr. Gabreuse is also the cathedral organist and plays on a fine instrument built by Telford of Dublin. Above the many-coloured houses of the town, caught in the bold sweep of a climbing road, is a broad plateau on which stands St. Coleman's Cathedral, dominating town and harbour. Its building began in 1868 when the foundation stone was laid. Lapis angularis positas. In 1879, the first mass was celebrated. Missa prima celebrata. In 1915, the cathedral was completed. Interios ac exteriors perfecta. 
and in 1919, the building was consecrated. Solemniter Consecrata. through the louvers, slanted like supercilious eyelids, the sound pours over the town. The clavier controlling these bells has a compass of three and a half octaves and is said to be one of the finest in the world. Each bell receives a liturgical blessing closely following the rite of baptism and each bell is given a name, the name of the patron saint of an Irish diocese or of a woman saint or of one of the principal missionary saints. Then they fill the town with their melodies. So the echoes die away among the steep streets and steep roofs and over the calm water round the cambers. Cove has many places of quiet, such as the town camber, a sort of little harbour, places where people meet and look on and rest and talk about, say, yacht races of the past. And there's no object to finish. Well, as I can to, see. Uh, we're very handicapped here for marks. For instance, there would only be the Dawn's Rock Lightship. Next would be the, the Fastnet. Yeah, Fastnet. No, all the, uh, uh, what do you call the Stags. Stags, yes. Yes. And mm. uh, with very little wind, oh, they'll never finish. If they're going to one of the Fastnet, would they? I wouldn't think so, Neil. Would you? No, I wouldn't think so. Uh. Talk about what's doing. Point for hand line fishing. Yeah. They say that that boat, western boat, was fishing ten miles east of the ship. Ten miles? Yeah. That's where they're off Ballycotton down that way. Somewhere, they said, between Ballycotton and the ship, ten miles east. Talk about a night's amusement. Did you see that night? Oh, aye. It was good. Free. It was a good night. Good show. Yes, the two houses. No, anyone. Is it at the quarter seven or seven o'clock? Seven But this place looks different on Regatta Day, the 15th of August. <laughs> the town promenade is crowded. It once was Columbine Key, where Victoria momentarily landed. There are yacht races and dinghy races and swimming races, and the crowds press close to the water's edge. But 
the most enthusiastic supporters are those who have gone to Lynch's Key and the Camber to see the pleasure boats racing upstream. Pleasure boat racing is slowly dying in the harbour, although it gets tremendous support from the crowd who are always wildly excited as the boats come in sight. The crews have battled their way up from below the battery on a course which runs the whole length of the town. And now the supporters, cycling and running, pour to the edge of the wooden quay to shout for Rushbrook. Come on, Rushbrook! And for White Point. Come on, the point, you And for St. Finbar. Come on, the bass! Come on, the bass! And for the new crew from Kinsale. Come on, the dog! Come on, Kinsale! And here they come, fighting for every foot of a lead. Come on, the dog! So they pass, and the followers chase them onwards to the promenade and the gun for the winner. And then the sideshows are resumed until the next race. There's no limit, no limit. There's no couple of size you like. <laughs> Red Scarlet, second favorite. Two to one, Red. Two to one, Kimberly, under it. Two to one, Red. Five, come on, Blue. Red, come on, Yellow. Nightfall brings the fireworks. Parents and children flock to the promenade for the last event in the program of the Cove People's Regatta. The fireworks which end the day, slashing the August darkness with swords and scimitars and lances of light. And what reflections those waters have shown. What bows have shouldered them aside? Galleys of Namidias coming to explore and colonize and then to fly in panic before the plague. The dark hulls of the Danes, the Norman ships with painted shields seeking a safe anchorage. It is 1492 and the bewildered boy Perkin Warbeck, dupe of the Yorkists, is sailing up to Passage West. shadows of the hulls pass on. Sir Walter Raleigh is sailing from the Cove of Cork on a last venture to the West Indies from which he will return to execution in the Tower of London. And now the waters of the Cove bear the gay and graceful hulls of the Water Club, manoeuvring before an island which echoes to their gunfire. An island now bearing a town which rings to the fireworks. There are British privateers in the Cove. Turkish and French pirates and Algerines. Here is the Duke of 220 tons, Captain Mr. Woods Rogers, navigator Captain William Dampier. She is provisioning here and will sail away on a voyage during which you will find on the island of Juan Fernandez, Alexander Selkirk, the original of Robinson Crusoe. There goes the brig Mary Russell watched by a woman of the cove who was the wife of her master, Captain Stewart.
captain steward who went mad and murdered all but one of his crew. Downstream from the St. George Steam Packet Company of Cork comes the Sirius, pressed into a voyage for which she was never intended, the crossing of the Atlantic. Her bunker coal is heaped on deck, but even with this extra supply, they will have to burn wooden fittings before Captain Richard Roberts brings her safely to New York, the first steamship to cross the Atlantic. There is a commotion in the harbor, for the citizens of Cove have seized the brig Westmead and captured a cargo of potatoes she was bringing away, deeming them of more use at home than abroad. This is 1839, and the last survivor of the raid dies in 1910, Alexander James, aged 93. The rockets soar and die as quickly fade away the twin wakes of foam astern of the paddle steamer Himalaya as she leaves the cove with troops for the Crimean War. Peace brings the river steamers linking the towns about the harbour, and there, deep laden with the Atlantic cable, lies the Agamemnon. It is 1856, and there is a light of hope through all Ireland, but in a house on the west beach of Cove, a light has gone out, for Father Matthew has died there. A yacht, the city of Ragusa, sails from the Cove to Boston, and the port will see the great yachts of other days, America, and Shamrock, and Britannia, and Valkyrie. And then the knife bows of the destroyers will split the waters in the 1914 war. And, innocent-seeming and inconspicuous, the Q-ships will slip out, Paxton and Pargata. The cove sees the Arklow schooners of the coastwise traffic and the schooners of Port Maddock. The Irish-owned ships, the first ships of the naval service, the motor torpedo boats and the corvettes. They came and they went, and the Cove of Cork saw them all. And now the final set piece has burnt out. Only the twinkling channel boys and the red eye of the spit lighthouse and the glare of the unsleeping steelworks light the Cove. The only ship in sight lies near the deserted promenade at the naval pier. That is a sound which every man who served about the harbor will remember. The five-minute blow. Five minutes before the Liberty boat leaves for the naval depot and Spike Island. One more day has been added to the records of this town which freed itself from dependence on war and dependence on an overseas power for its prosperity. One more day is beginning. A day in the future of the Cove of Cork. The safe anchorage for ships.